We've been preaching this term through the book of Exodus, and uh, this morning we're looking at what are known as the Ten Plagues. I'm not sure that's a great name for them, uh, for reasons we'll see uh, in a moment. Uh, But because it's quite a long story, we're not going to have time to read it all. Uh, The uh, the Ten Plagues go together. Uh, This morning we're thinking about nine, the first nine. The tenth, which is somewhat distinct, uh, we'll look at next week. And so what I'm going to do is read uh, from uh, halfway through chapter 7 of Exodus, picking up at verse 14, and then we're going to jump to chapter 9 to give us a taste of a few of the the plagues. Um, I'll let you know when we're skipping over chapter 8. If you've got one of the service sheets, it's all nice and obvious for you. Uh, We've printed it that way. So let's hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 7. Uh, So far, Moses has asked for uh, Pharaoh to let his people go, let God's people go, and it's been refused. So, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying... Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you've not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Merah and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So again, that's the end of chapter seven, then jumping ahead to chapter nine. Uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on men and beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and all your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be claimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of hail, very heavy hail, such as never been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I've got out of this city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there'll be no more hail so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emma were not struck down for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord and thunder and hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. May God bless his word to us this morning. Imagine an Israelite, a faithful, believing Israelite from the days of Moses, uh, sitting down uh, with a Christian from today. Uh, and together they say, uh, look, we, we both believe. 
Uh, we both believe in the same God, the God of the Bible. Why not write a song together? Okay, says he is right. You go first. Well, how about this, says the Christian? Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. Love it, says the Israelite. Love it. Uh, how do you plan it, it going on? Well, says the Christian, what about every other line is his love endures forever? So we can talk about something God does, and then we can say his love endures forever. Love it, says the Israelite. Great stuff. What, is, what are your suggestions? Uh, what about this, says the Christian? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. I'm not going to sing the whole thing. Yes, says the Israelite. Keep going. For the life that's been reborn, his love endures forever. Uh, says the Israelite, I'm not so sure on that. What does that mean? Oh, well, says the Christian, it's all about being born again. And Oh, don't worry, you've not got, back, you've not got to that bit yet. We'll, we'll come back to that. Hey, you have a go. You have a go, faithful Israelite brother. Okay, says the Israelite, what about this? Uh, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For he killed King Og. His love endures forever. What does the Christian say? Well, the Israelite sees he looks a bit, a bit strange. So, okay, I'll have another go, says the Israelite. What about this? Give thanks to the Lord our God and King. His love endures forever. For he king killed King Bashan. No? Or what about this one? The Lord strikes down lots of mighty kings. His love endures forever. We don't sing songs like that, do we? How many songs have you ever sung in church here <laughs> at another church? At a festival in the summer or a summer camp or Word Alive or whatever it may be. See you. How many songs have you sung about God striking people down? Honestly, I think the sum total for me is zero. I have sung that song many times. I think it's Chris Tomlin, isn't it? Give thanks to the Lord our God and King. His love endures forever. It's a perfectly okay song. The point of this sermon is not to knock the song. It's a perfectly okay song, but it is based on Psalm 136. And yet it is significantly edited highlights. Psalm 136 follows that pattern. It will say something about God and then deliver the line. His love endures forever. But Psalm 136 also says things like this. To him who struck down, i.e. killed, the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. It includes those lines I quoted a moment ago. To the God who killed King Bashan. His love endures forever. Who killed King Og, his love endures forever. Who killed mighty kings, his love endured forever. Who killed powerful kings, his love endures forever. There is an awful lot of killing, striking, going on in that psalm. And yet, do you see, every other line is still, his love endures forever. Uh, The plagues, uh, the plague story that we've just read, is in many ways a horrific story. As I came in this morning, Zach sort of asked me, how are you doing? And I, I don't know how to answer because sometimes uh, you, you find, particularly when you're, you're preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, that your mood is very affected by, by what you're going to say. Uh, so if you're preaching on Jesus, gentle and lowly, it feels very different to when you're preaching on three chapters of God smiting and striking and killing and maiming. Because let's make no bones about it, that is what he's doing in these chapters. But we can't tidy them up. That's what children's Bibles tend to do, don't they? They become kind of funny stories about frogs jumping everyone. But, but we can't shy away from the fact that if, if this was a film, it would be a horror film. 
It is a weighty passage. And yet, it is a passage that, as I say, the Israelites in later years can look back on when they write their psalms, their songs, and still sing about how it's about God's love. As, as we'll see, or as I hope we'll see as we go through, therefore, we, we need to feel the weight, the drama, the pain, even, dare I say it, the terror, if we're also going to experience the love that, that makes God's people rejoice and sing. Let's dive in and look a little bit more closely. Uh, the purpose of all these plagues, uh, all these strikings, is pretty clear. Uh, God says the same thing several times. And that is this. Uh, they are uh, God acting so that everyone will know who he is. Okay. These plagues are God showing us who he is. And the expression that comes back time and time again as you read through, you might have heard it, is I've done this so that you may know that I am the Lord. Uh, so God wants the Egyptians to know he's the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Uh, God wants Pharaoh, the ruler of the Egyptians, to know that he's the Lord. He is God. Uh, Daniel Sheet, 7, verse 17. Uh, chapter 7 is the first part of the reading. Thus says the Lord, and this is to Pharaoh, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Oh. And what is, the, what is going to let Pharaoh know? That, that God is the Lord, well, when the Nile is struck and turns to blood. It's the plague again. Uh, chapter 9, over the page, verse 14. God says to Pharaoh, This time I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. No one, no God like me, says God. How will you know? Because of all these plagues. Uh, chapter 10, which is just beyond our reading but which wraps up uh, the story of the first nine plagues at least. God says this, I'm going to show these signs of mine among them uh, so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your, of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. One of the reasons I'm doing these signs is so you can tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. Now, are they not words that make you swallow, blink, take a step back? God wants you to be able to tell your children how harshly, severely he dealt with the Egyptians. Now, he doesn't mean unfairly. He's not being unjust. God is always just. He always does what is right. But, but he wants us to know how severe, harsh he was with them. I think it is very rare that I open the Bible in the morning and think to myself, I need to see today, Lord, how severe you can be. And yet that is part of how we come to know God. If these plagues are all about God showing who he is, he shows who he is in his severity. And he wants that the world out there, symbolised by the Egyptians, those who stand against him, symbolised by Pharaoh, and his own people, Moses, and then the children, the grandchildren, to know this. Uh, hence he sends these signs and wonders, as he calls them. We're always talking, wishing we could do signs and wonders, don't we? When I was uh, a minister back in Derby, there was an email went around lots of churches, probably all the churches in Derby, saying we, 
we want to see more signs and wonders uh, in Derby. So we're going to start this movement and we were, we were all meant to go out onto the streets so there'd be signs and wonders. And, um, signs and wonders in the Bible are a pretty mixed business. I'm not sure the people writing the email wanted these signs and wonders. Okay, the River Derwent turned to blood, frogs everywhere in Derby. And yet these signs reveal who God is. Know me through the plagues, says God. Uh, let's try and get them a little bit straight. Uh, we won't have time to look in detail in each one, but I think that's okay because it's, it's not as if the plague of gnats is particularly telling us something different from the plague of flies or frogs or hail or whatever. They go together, at least the first nine as a package. It seems they come in three cycles of three. Uh, first of all, the Nile is turned to blood. That's the first plague. Uh, then frogs are everywhere. How disgusting is that? Imagine, the text says the frogs get absolutely everywhere in your house. Imagine, you get up in the morning, children, um, you open your drawer to get your clothes out, you put your hand in to get some socks, and there's frogs. You pull on your slipper, and there's a frog in the bottom of it. You pour your cornflakes, there's frogs in the cornflake packet. They're absolutely everywhere. Now, that's pretty annoying, but at this stage, it's not too serious, is it? It's grim, especially if they don't like frogs, but it's not really doing too much damage. Next come lice, or gnats, as it's sometimes translated. Uh, Everywhere, again, you put your hand, open the kitchen drawer to reach a spoon. Lice, everywhere, inescapable. That's plagues one, two, three. Then we go around the cycle again, four, five, six. Uh, Flies, number four. Again, quite hard to work out exactly what sort of insects they are, but, but they're everywhere. Flies everywhere. And then it, it's just getting more serious. The fifth plague, the animals all die, the livestock all die. We read about this uh, in chapter 9. Uh, the economy is being decimated. If you're, there's no shops to go to, are there? It's not sort of Tesco's in, in Cairo. Um, so your, your cows are, are dying. Your goats, your sheep are dying. Your, your your wealth, in other words, is being taken away and it's getting a little bit more serious. Then number six comes along and they're covered in boils, these sores. It sounds disgusting, doesn't it? Itchy, horrible boils all over the body. That the plague is getting closer to home. And then for seven, eight, nine, the last cycle of three, really, they begin to get dangerous. Hail falls and God says it's like no other hailstorm ever before. Thunder, lightning, even almost as if it were fire from heaven, we read. Uh, the, this isn't just your sort of pitter-patter of little hailstones tapping on the roof. This is killing anyone who's outside, man or beast. Do you notice that? Uh, verse 21 of chapter 9, as we read. Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. But what's going to happen? Well, verse 19, anyone who's not in the home will die. Okay, these are rocks from heaven. Then come the locusts. Locusts uh, just decimate the crops. Anything left after the, uh, the flies and the hail. That's why you get that strange detail about some crops growing later uh, in chapter 9 when we read it. Any crops left from the hail that then grew up afterwards, well, the locusts decimate. This is going to be famine. And then finally, darkness. The ninth plague. Darkness, we're told, that is so thick. You can't see your hand in front of your face. I think the idea is even if you strike a match, it'll just go out. People can't move. It is that dark. It is a terrifying darkness. Uh, 
let's say they seem to be roughly in three groups of three. Uh, the first time round each cycle, Moses goes to Pharaoh in the morning, we're, we're told. Okay, in the morning, uh, uh, Moses meets Pharaoh and, and tells him what's going to happen if he doesn't let God's people go. So that's plagues one, four, seven. Second one of each cycle, Moses does go to Pharaoh, but not in the morning. So he still gets a warning in plagues two, four, six, but it's short warning. And then the third of each cycle, okay, plagues three, six, nine, there is no warning. It simply happens. God just does it. The first time, the first three uh, plagues come from Aaron lifting his staff. The middle three, no one's doing any staff waving. The last three, it is Moses who represents God lifting his staff or hand. And so they increase in severity as they go on. As I said, frogs are annoying, but not devastating. Boils on your body, it's getting personal, irritating. But by the time we get to the last couple of plagues, they are, well, it's as if creation is being undone. And we read about that the hail on the land, it is destroying all the crops. It strikes down every, fee- every plant of the field and tree of the field in verse 25. That is a phrase picked up from Genesis 1. You know, when God creates the world, uh, he grows he, out of the land, springs every plant of the field and every tree of the field. They, they're just phrases from Genesis 1. It's like creation is being undone. That's why we end up finally in darkness. Let there be light, God said at the beginning. But now let there be darkness. It's as if the land of Egypt is being decreated. It's terrifying. And for a while, the magicians can cough, copy. Do you notice that with the, um, the Nile to blood? So Moses turns up the Nile to blood, or Aaron's staff turns the Nile to blood. And it lasts a week. Now, of course, a week without water, and everyone pretty much would die. So God allows them to dig wells uh, by the side of the Nile so they can get their water. And that means the magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, can dig up some water too. Uh, and so what do the magicians do? So verse 22 uh, they, they see the Niles turn to blood. They manage to get some water. And what can they do, verse 22? They do the same thing. They turn the water to blood. Don't know how. I presume it's some sort of dark magic, demonic activity. The Bible never denies that there are other spirits at work in the world alongside God. God is greater, but there is a devil. There are, there are dark forces at work. But you see, all they can do is make the situation worse. Okay, the Nile, the great river, is full of blood. God's been merciful. You can dig a few holes and get some water. Look, says the magicians, we can turn that water to blood too. Oh, brilliant. Thanks so much. <laughs> there goes our drinking water. You get the same thing with the frogs. Frogs everywhere. Ah, oh, look at this, says the magicians. Do their dark magic. More frogs. Oh, great. Just what we needed. See, nothing can stand against God. They just make it worse. And actually, after the first three plagues, the magicians are just out. They seem to be able to copy the first ones. But actually, even by the third, the gnats or the lice, they, they can't do anything. And the boils, in our reading, are, are so severe on the magicians, they can't do anything. And they recognise they are outpowered. And they end the plague stories begging Pharaoh, let the people go. This is the work of God. So these plagues, they increase in severity. 
And they are, just finally, but before we try and look at how they teach us who God is, they are just. It's really important we notice this. And they're not totally random. Uh, two reasons they're not random. One we're going to come back to in a moment. The first is this. They, they bring justice in a kind of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth way. Okay, strict justice. Take the first one. That's a good example. The Nile is turned to blood. What? Why? Well, what did Pharaoh and the Egyptians done earlier in the story of Exodus? Do you remember? Children, what did they do? What, what did Pharaoh and the Egyptians do with the Israelite babies? Do you remember what they did earlier on in the story? Yeah. They killed them. And how did they kill them? Exactly. Throwing them in the Nile. Egypt turned the Nile red with the blood of Israelite baby boys. So God turns the Nile red. Uh, Egypt enslaves the Israelites, takes away all their take away all their property. So what does God do? Destroy all the Egyptians' property. He is being just here. That's really important. This is not God in some sort of giant fit, losing his temper, going off the rails. This is God revealing who he is. Three things it tells us, therefore, about God. Three things we're meant to know about God. Uh, first of all, God is a God who strikes his enemies. God is a God who strikes his enemies. Uh, I've already said that, that uh, the plagues aren't a great name uh, for these ten disasters. Uh, the Jews speak of the ten strikes. And that's a better name, I, I think. Uh, it's the word that God uses most often to describe what he's doing. Uh, It's what he promised he would do right back in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, verse 20, God said, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I'll do in it. Uh, We'll look down at our passage today, chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. On and on we could go. Uh, into chapter 8, they, they strike the ground and up come the flies. Or the firstborn, the last plague we'll look at next week, God strikes down the firstborn. Born, sorry. These are ten strikes, ten blows. And God in particular is striking, well, who? Who is God striking? Uh, the first thing we can say is he's striking uh, his enemies. But who are these enemies? Well, Pharaoh, first of all. Pharaoh is struck. Pharaoh will not let the people go. And so, and so here we get to, to some of the, the darkest, most mysterious, in some ways the, the most troubling teaching in the Bible. And that is the teaching about Pharaoh and his heart. Pharaoh's heart is a central theme in these chapters. We're told three things about Pharaoh's heart. Or rather, three, three ways that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Sometimes we're told God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go. In fact, that's the first thing we're told about Pharaoh's heart. Right back in chapter 4 and verse 21, we read this. God speaking to Moses says this, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I put in your power, but I will harden his heart. Heart, so that he will not let the people go. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let me go. Now, this is before it's even started. 
time and time again, we'll read God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, sometimes we'll read about Pharaoh's heart just being hardened without telling any, anyone telling us who's doing it. Uh, we see that. Uh, the very first verse of the passage we read today, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. And at other times, we read about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Uh, look over to chapter 9 and almost the last verse, verse 34. Uh, when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail had, uh, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. See, Pharaoh is doing the hardening in verse 34. So, so who is acting on Pharaoh's heart? Who is making Pharaoh refuse to let the people go? Two answers, aren't there? God and Pharaoh. And however uncomfortable it might make us feel, we cannot get around that. It is God as well as Pharaoh. Now, if all we read was Pharaoh hardened his heart, we'd, well, okay, there's Pharaoh sinning, and we'd say, well, up to him, there we go. He's been foolish, sinful. But the text says more than that. Even before Pharaoh has started work, God has said, I will harden his heart. Uh, what do we say about this? First of all, we have to realise that in the Bible, our hearts are not beyond God's reach. It's sobering. It's also good news. Proverbs tells us that the king's heart is a stream a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wants. Even the king, the greatest of human beings, the one who's seemingly all-powerful, his heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wants. Our hearts are not beyond God's directing. Now, that's not to deny that, that we also make choices and, and do things. Pharaoh really hardens his own heart. Pharaoh really decides that he's not going to let the people go. He is not a puppet. Now, there's a great mystery here. So, so we, we, we think it's got to be either God or, or Pharaoh who hardens his heart. Which one is it really? Uh, that's because we're used to everything working on the same kind of level. Um, so you take your kids to the swings, there's two of you, perhaps mum and dad take the kids to the swing, and if dad is pushing the swing, well, mum isn't. So why is the kid swinging? Well, because dad is pushing. And if dad isn't pushing and mum's pushing, why is the swing going? Because mum's pushing. It's one or the other. I suppose you might both push, in which case it's sort of 50-50. But we can always work out kind of who, where's the force coming from? Who's doing the acting? Now, that's because mum and dad are creatures that exist on the same level. But God isn't part of the universe. He's not a creature like us. He exists above it all. And so somehow it can be the case that an action is entirely my responsibility and yet at the same time entirely what God intended, planned and knew that I would do. How is that possible? I don't know. I don't know. In cases like pushing a swing, we kind of don't care, do we? You know, who, who is making the, the, the child go back and forth on the swing? Is it mum pushing or is it God and his sovereign plan? Both we say, that's, that's fine. But the same comes when it comes to our hearts and decisions about what we do or don't believe. God is fully sovereign. And yet at the same time, we are responsible for our decisions. Pharaoh is not just a domino. 
okay, that God knocks over. You know, he's minding his own business, would have been a perfectly nice chap, but God hardened his heart. But you need a God who can change hearts. Because you need a God who can change your heart. Naturally, we harden ourselves. Naturally, we would take no interest in Christ and the gospel. But thankfully, God gives us new hearts. In Psalm 51, creating me a new heart, O God. If you don't like this, and I, I, I fully accept this, these are deep, difficult things. But I'd suggest to you, if you're a Christian, there are things you believe already. If you've ever prayed for a friend or a family member to become a Christian, what are you praying for? That God would change their heart. Well, what's the point otherwise? You, you fall on your knees and say, Look, please, please, save Sarah. Well, would she be born again? Would she believe? What can God say from heaven? Oh, I'd love to, but I can't meddle with her free will. I can't touch her heart. That's beyond me. No, of course not. He is able to answer. That he's also, therefore, able to harden for his own mysterious purposes. To show his power is greater than any other. He's just, but it's mysterious. In fact, Pharaoh isn't just defeating, sorry, God isn't just defeating Pharaoh here. He's also defeating the, the gods of Egypt. Again, we won't walk through all nine, but uh, the Egyptians, like most ancient peoples really, had different gods they worshipped. And it, it, it's like the plagues are embarrassing and making fools of all these gods. So the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. There was a Nile god, uh, apparently called Harpy. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. My Egyptian's not very good. Um, uh, god of the Nile. So what does God do? Makes the Nile turn to blood. Okay, there's Harpy, slain. Rivers of blood. Think of the second parade where these frogs go everywhere. The Egyptians, you might have seen it. If you've been to the British Museum or sort of seen, you know, um, CBeebies programmes children about Egyptians, you might, you might have seen these carvings of, of the god called Hecht, who's got a frog's head. So what does God do? I think you're in charge of the frog. Here we go. Bang, frogs everywhere. Perhaps most famously of all is Ra, the sun god, the god of the sun. So what happens in the ninth plague? God switches off the sun. God is embarrassing humiliating, defeating the gods of Egypt. This is the, a way that the plagues are, are reflected on later in the Bible. And Numbers tells us that the, Egypt, the Israelites marched out defiantly in full view of the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. God is striking the false gods and the rebellious humans in Egypt. Let me ask you two questions then. Does your God do this? It's not a comfortable question, but does your God do this? Do you believe in a God who strikes? A God who sends lice to torment people? A God who sends boils and sores, locusts, terrifying darkness? It's not a comfy question, is it? But remember, God says, I am doing this so you will know me. We can't whitewash the Bible. Nor can we say, well, that's just some sort of Old Testament stuff. No, these are pictures of judgment that are picked up very explicitly in the New. Uh, Jesus describes hell as a place of utter darkness. Uh, perhaps most strikingly of all, uh, in the book of Revelation, which is, let's face it, a hard book to understand. 
Uh, God's judgment is pictured in various ways. Now, it doesn't matter for our sake now what exactly he's judging at the time. There's all sorts of debates. Is it a picture of the end time judgment where God comes back uh, or Jesus returns to, to, to execute judgment? Is it a, a picture of him judging a particular city like Rome or Jerusalem? doesn't matter for our sake. But, but in Revelation 16, seven angels come with seven bowls of rock. So we're New Testament times now. Seven bowls that get poured out. Here's the first one. Uh, the bowls of the wrath of God. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came on the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. There's the boils. Here comes the second bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing that was in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl and the rivers and the springs of water became blood, water to blood in bowls two and three, just like the Nile. Uh, the fifth angel poured out his bowl, and the kingdom was plunged into darkness. The sixth angel poured out uh, his bowl, and coming out of the, the east, what happens? You get this strange creature with frogs coming out of his mouth, frogs being unclean spirits. The seventh bowl is poured out, and what happens? Thunder, lightning, and a great hailstorm such as never been seen on all the earth. The same God, old and new, will come one day in terrifying just judgment. He will strike. Christian, do you believe it or have you tied that away? <coughs> it is so tempting to present God as just a God who fulfills my greatest needs, just a God who makes me happy when I'm sad, feel loved when I'm lonely, makes me well when I'm sick. Consistent warning that God issue is I am a God who will strike sinners dead in ongoing horrifying terror. Do you know that God? And secondly, do you realize nothing can save you from him? See, because all these gods of Egypt are humiliated and taken down, there's nowhere for the Egyptians to turn. Where can they be saved? It's the same for us. I was trying to think of what it would look like in our, in our own society. All the things that we look to, to to save us, to rescue us, gone. It starts off gentle, doesn't it, with the plagues, the frogs, annoying, that sort of thing. So first of all, down go all the things that distract us from the reality of death and judgment. No Netflix. Uh, no going to the gym, no beauty salons to, to make you think you're healthy and are going to live forever. Uh, then the, the temperature gets turned up. The banks are gone. You've got no money, no income. The supermarket's destroyed. You've got no food. Communication system shut down. There is no one you can talk to. No one who's going to come to the rescue. No 999. No NHS. Uh, then, in the final cycle, down go the mosques and the temples. No other god to, to cry out to. Family perishing. The vaccine laboratories and the hospitals destroyed. There is no one left to save. Nowhere else to turn when God comes to judge sinners. All that remains is hell. Eternal darkness, eternal torment. If you think the, if you think the plagues are bad, remember they're a picture. Far better to be plagued by lice. 
far better be covered in sores and boils than, than enter hell eternally. This is a horrifying passage, but it's a passage in God's word. God wants us to know he will justly and righteously do that. And so what on earth are we to do? Why on earth do the Israelites sing, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever, he struck down Egypt? How is that a revelation of his love? Two things, much more briefly, as we close. Uh, We see in the plagues too, not just the God who strikes down his enemies, but the God who separates his people. From the fourth plague onwards, God separates his people. Fourth plague, the flies. They go everywhere, but not in the land of Goshen, God's people. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 22, uh, there are no flies in their fields. Or look down at chapter 9. Uh, verse 6, this is the livestock, all the animals die. 9 verse 6, the next day the Lord did this thing, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Uh, it's the same with the boils, okay? all over the Egyptians, but not on God's people. God is separating out a, a people. And again, this too is part of his character, this too is how he wants to make himself known. Uh, chapter 8 and verse 22, On that day, I'll set apart the land of Goshen, that's the land where his people live, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I am a God who strikes, says God, but I'm also a God who separates some people out. That is part of my character too. And you just begin to get a glimmer of good news, a glimmer of hope in the midst of this utter terrifying passage. And it's hope not just for the the Jews, but even for the Israelites. Did you notice in chapter 9, when the hail came, Uh, In verse 20, then whoever feared the word of the Lord amongst the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock into the houses. Some of the Egyptians are getting saved. But the word goes out, if you want to be saved, get inside. Those who mocked God ignored his word like Pharaoh. Down go the cattle. Those who listened flee and find refuge. It seems that maybe God is going to provide refuge. And that's what brings us to our last point this morning. Yes, we have a God who strikes down his enemies. Yes, we have a God who separates his people. And most amazingly of all, we have a God who struck his son. Who could endure this? That the thought of going face to face with the God who strikes should fill you with horror. Because it is what we deserve, you and me, just as much as Pharaoh and the magicians. And yet what does God do? If you've got a Bible, come with me to Isaiah and chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. A famous Old Testament prediction, passage that points forward to Jesus. Look at verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. Verse 40, see? He was stricken, smitten by God. That's the the plague word, the strike word. God strikes himself, his own son, instead of us. That is what it takes to rescue you. 
We get the same thing down in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he, Jesus, was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And that is the word translated back in chapter 11 as plague. It's a plague word. He was plagued in your place. All these things should come to you, but God in his love comes down. He becomes one of us, becomes man, and he deliberately, knowing what it's going to be like, walks into the pit, into the darkness, faces the lice, the frogs, the locusts, and he does it out of love for you. This is why the Israelites can sing uh, that God striking his enemies is good news. Because ultimately, God's enemies are sin and death. And when he takes them on his own shoulders and is struck down for them, that is the refuge for you and me. It is the only refuge. And so the horror of the plagues show us God's justice and terrible anger But they also show us the immensity of his love. He was willing to take that on in our place. Grace, love, undeserved, mercy. So that we might be safe. The most horrifying passage in the Bible. That shows us the depth of terrifying judgment. Also show us the depth of unbelievable love. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His love endures forever. Yes, tremble before him. But don't forget, too, his everlasting love that was willing to go through hell on the cross in order that you might never do so, in order that you might be safe from the great hailstorms. In other words, in order that he might bring you out to that promised land of heaven. There is your only hope, but a secure one, because it's in the hands not of you and your faith and your repentance and your good works, but in the hands of God's own son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, do uh, bow before you as we read passages like this. Uh, We confess we have domesticated you. Uh, We have tried to recreate you in our own image rather than listening uh, to what you have said about yourselves, uh, yourself. Uh, In particular, we are quick to diminish our own sin and therefore to Uh, lose sight of your justice and your wrath. Uh, Lord, forgive us. But make us rejoice too to know that you have paid the price. And Lord Jesus, that you've walked into the flames and the darkness, uh, the pit of lice and frogs, in order that we might never do so. Uh, Might our hearts grip that truth and rejoice in it. We pray for all those known to us who are not yet safe, not yet inside the house before the hailstorms fall. Lord, make us prayerful for them. Uh, Give us opportunities to speak and in your mercy change their hearts, you who direct the heart like a river, in order that they might flee to Christ and find refuge. Thank you, O Lord, that you are a saviour God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.